We'll be on page six and continuing the series we began last week, the title of which is on the front cover of the notes and also on the screen, Stolen Identity, Who Does God Say I Really Am? And I'll let you know what, uh, briefly what we looked at last week, and then we'll pick up from there with uh, lesson two and uh, on page six in just a moment. But I want to uh, remind you of one announcement of an uh, upcoming item, and that is at the end of May, May 26th, we have our next periodic newcomers orientation. And we schedule those throughout the year. And what they are are four weeks worth during this hour, during the 11 o'clock hour, in which I meet with whoever uh, wants to find out more about our ministry and our history and our beliefs and where we uh, hope to go in the future, uh, why we do things the way we do. So thus the name, Newcomer's Orientation. It's an orientation to who we are and what we're about. And it's for those who are looking for a church and need uh, information to help decide if this would be the place that God would have you to join and to serve and grow. Uh, It is no obligation and no pressure at all. So we give you the four weeks of information, and then we put it in your lap to decide what you want to do with that. If anything, you pray about that. If you have follow-up questions, uh, whatever. But we provide it for your benefit so that you can make an informed decision. And that will start uh, Sunday, May the 26th, during this 11 o'clock hour. And I will meet with whatever group we have in one of our classrooms. And then we'll have uh, others leading this class for those four weeks. And then when that's finished, then uh, I'll come back in and and lead this class. So that's the way we do that. And if you fit in the newcomer category, uh, you'd like to know more about us, then I encourage you to mark that off May the 26th. And uh, we would would, uh, like to know who's doing that. So if you plan on taking the newcomer's orientation, if you'll just let the folks at the information center know, and that will help us know how many notebooks to workbooks to make for that class, all right? It's the only announcement I want to highlight. There are other things in your program, in your bulletin. I encourage you to take a look at those. But page six today, we're going to continue the series we began last week, Stolen Identity. And last week, I said, as you have heard me say in other contexts in the past, ideas have consequences. So what we think The ideas we have about everything affect the way we behave. So belief determines behavior. Ideas have consequences. And in this context of our identity and who God says I am, the ideas that I have about myself and the ideas that I have about others will affect the way I view myself, the way I view others, the way I interact, in short, the way I live. Everyone lives out of, I said last week, a sense of identity. We all have an idea about ourselves and how we view ourselves, even if we haven't consciously written it down or or thought about it. All of us carries around a view of ourselves, whether good, bad, whether accurate or or inaccurate. And I pointed out last week some of the ways that, uh, that we adopt our identity. One very popular one is I identify myself with what I do. And so very often when we meet someone new, uh, very early in the conversation after we exchange names and pleasantries, we'll say, so what is it that you do? And our identity can become caught up in what it is that we, we do. And if I feel like I don't do anything worthwhile, or if I'm in the company of those who are 
perhaps high-powered and more educated than me uh, in, a, in a, a, a higher or more lofty pr- profession than, than me, then I might be embarrassed about what I do. But notice my identity is tied up in what I do or, and how valuable that is. Or I might find my identity in a group, uh, in, my, in my family, in my colleagues at work, in the team that I am on, or perhaps a gang even on a negative side. But people will find their identity in what they do, in, in a group, or find my identity in who I'm trying to make myself out to be. So I am busy trying to make myself something that I want to identify with and I want people to identify me with. And I pointed out last week that what all of those things have in common is that they can all be taken away, that they are all circumstantial. What I do, my job, my career, you know, heaven forbid, but that could end for any of us tomorrow, couldn't it? I may find myself tomorrow unable to do tomorrow what I was able to do today. If my identity is caught up in what I do, now what am I going to do? Now what's going to happen to me? Or if my identity is wrapped up in in a group, then what happens? The group can be taken away or I can be taken away from the group. And then what happens, happens to me? Or I'm trying to make myself into something that I'm not yet but want to become. But again, that process can become interrupted. It can, uh, in fact, never be realized. And then what condition am I in? How do I go about life? How do I view myself? How do I feel about myself? So this issue of identity is an important one indeed because all of us lives with a sense of identity. Unfortunately, many of us get our sense of identity from circumstantial kinds of things that can and do change, that are never achieved. We're going to see in the weeks ahead... <laughs> is that just a squeaky wheel on a, on a cart? That's what that sounds like, doesn't it? Either, or it's some of our kids. So we're going to see in the weeks to come that the Bible has a a much better remedy for us uh, to adopt our identity. But for now, we want to see the consequences of having a a false identity. On page 6, lesson 2, does the Bible really say what we say at the top of page 6? A basic teaching in pop psychology is that many people have a low sense of self-esteem. They do not think they're very good. They do not love themselves. They do not accept themselves the way they are. They lack self-confidence and so on. Psychologists assert that such a lack of self-esteem is the reason people behave poorly. If people could improve their self-image, then they would feel better about themselves and perform better in life. In order to be happy, well-adjusted, and capable of loving and reaching out to others, you must love, accept, forgive, and feel good about yourself. Or at least that's the, the popular teaching. And it's a teaching that all of us have heard, and perhaps many of us have, have adopted. But we're going to see that from a biblical standpoint, and what God says about us, uh, it actually needs to be nuanced quite, quite a bit in order to have an accurate understanding of, of who we are. You see, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that we all already have, every last one of us, 
a high view of ourselves. Now, I'm going to try to show that and how that fits in with people that you may have met or people you know who perhaps have done some awful things to themselves or to others uh, because, at least ostensibly, they do not have a, a, a high view of themselves. I'll try to show how the claim that I just made, that the Bible says that we all have a high view of ourselves, how that fits in. But for now, just uh, understand that the Bible teaches we all have a high view of ourselves. Now, uh, where? Where does the Bible teach that? Well, you have to go way back. You have to go back in the Bible story before humanity enters the story. History is, as you've heard us say, his story, God's story. Time was created by God in the beginning. God created. But prior to in the beginning, there was God because God is eternal, right? And so before human history, there was still God's history and God's story. And the Bible teaches that God's story includes uh, angelic beings, spirit beings like himself. And one of those spirit beings is actually mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14 in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 14. He's named Lucifer, son of the, son of the morning. You all, are, many of you are familiar with that. And so you, you have this description of, of Lucifer. I believe you have a description of him as well in Ezekiel chapter 28 as the anointed cherub, the anointed angel, and leader of the heavenly choir, and, and beautiful, and... and and skilled, and filled with pride, Isaiah 14. And in Isaiah 14, the prophet Isaiah has Lucifer saying, I will be like the Most High. And so the first, the first sin is actually committed by someone who has a very high view of himself, namely Lucifer. Well, okay, that goes back then before humanity enters the, the picture. But then having fallen from, from heaven because of this high view of himself, I will be like God. Then this same deceiver now, Lucifer, enters the garden where humanity has been created and placed. And you remember the dialogue in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say to you that you shall not eat of this particular tree? And a dialogue between the serpent and the woman. The serpent who had said, because of his high view of himself, I will be like God, is now looking to deceive by convincing the man and the woman that God is ripping you off by giving you less than you deserve. Please understand, the, first, the very first sin was the cosmic treason against God by, by Lucifer and his followers. The first human sin was in kind, namely, that God is not giving me what I deserve. God is a killjoy. God is holding back. I'm going to get what's mine. And Lucifer, the serpent, appeals to that and appeals to that successfully, as we all, as we all know. Now, what's behind, and I'll think about this, what is behind the idea that, that Satan could could appeal to Adam and Eve's sense of uh, what they deserve. Well, behind that is that I am entitled to certain things. 
And if that entitlement is withheld from me, then I will react in a particular way, not a, not a good way. And I want to show how that plays out in everyday life in 2013. But it goes back to Lucifer. I will be like God. It goes back to the garden. You will be like God, said the serpent to the man and the woman. So he's appealing to, he had this sense of entitlement, he's appealing to their sense of entitlement. And I am telling you that the Bible teaches that people have a high view of themselves because people come into this world with a sense of entitlement. I deserve certain things. I'm entitled to certain things. I'm worth it. So just stay with me. When we get angry, just think about when you get angry. Not if you get angry, when you get angry. When I get angry. When I get angry, what has been violated? My sense, of, in some way, somehow, my sense of what is mine, right? Of what's coming to me, of what I deserve. And, and, and even in everyday, mundane, small ways, I'm out on the, out on the road. You know, I've tried to tell you all, and I've tried to tell other people, yes, as a matter of fact, I do own the road. But do you think you own the road? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And the sooner you all get the idea, the better off everyone will be. Now, we're out there, and I'm entitled to that lane. You're not entitled to that lane. I'm entitled to that lane. And if you get that lane before I get that lane, I'm hacked off. Why am I hacked off? Because I deserve something. What's behind every last time you get angry in whatever set of circumstances? There's something that's been withheld that I'm entitled to, that I think I deserve. My sense of justice has been violated. It is just and it is right that I should have whatever it is. And if I don't have that, then I react in anger. So understand, when you get angry, when I get angry, that's what's at play. I deserve better. I deserve this. It's not a small thing. We want to blow it off. You know, yeah, I have a little bit of it. Every now and then I have a bad temper. Okay. You know, uh, all right, look at it this way. <laughs> You're the dude in the heavens saying, I'll be like God. Does that help? <laughs> it's not a small thing. You're the guy and the gal in the garden saying we will be like God. In those moments, that's precisely what you and I are doing. We are acting out the nature that we acquired from our first parents. Now, this is the Bible's perspective then, that we have a high view of ourselves. In fact, we have a sense of entitlement that we deserve and that we are worth it. And the anger that we express in various contexts is our reaction to the things that are withheld from us, and because we have this entitlement mentality, then we get angry. If we pout because we don't have any friends. Now, when I say this, I'm not making fun. And so when I use the word pout, I'm not, maybe there's a better word. But when we're down, you know, I, I, I don't have any friends. I don't have enough friends. But what's behind that? And I'm not saying it's good that someone doesn't have friends, of course. God made us to be social beings and, and made us for one another and made us to love one another. So it is good for us to have one another and to have friends and to have camaraderie and relationship. 
But of course, that doesn't always happen the way we want. And when it doesn't happen the way we want, and we're down or we pout about that, what's behind that? Just like the anger, what's behind that? I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to better than this. My sense of justice has been violated. After all, that idiot has friends. (laughs) Notice how that goes. Now I start to compare and contrast. How did you ever get friends? How did you ever get in with the in crowd? If you could get with the in crowd, I should certainly be with the in. Okay, and on it goes, right? These are all internal deliberations, and behind it all is this high view, not low view, this high view of ourselves that the Bible says Lucifer had and has, that Lucifer's temptation to the first man and woman successfully plunged them into rebellion against God, reacting against God because he was ripping them off. And we are their children. And it plays out for us in everyday life, in anger, being down and pouting, because things are not going, not just not going the way I want them to go, the way they should go. They should go this way. Or, now let me get you know, even more current and perhaps more controversial, I, I don't know. Bullying is a big deal today. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid in school, there were people who bullied and people who were bullied. And, you know, people were known as bullies. Sometimes you had to stand up to a bully. You know, I was, I think, seven the first time I stood up to a bully. No kidding. And I'm playing Little League. And I'm on the, sitting on the end of the bench at Little League. We're waiting for our coach to show up for our game. We all have our little T-shirts on. We have our hats on. And there was this one bully from the other team who was coming by every kid on the bench, and he was knocking their hat off. And we were all afraid of him. And I don't know why, but I decided I'm last here. When he gets to me, he knocks my hat off. I'm going to do something about it. So he gets to me, and he knocks my hat off. And I stand up. And we get into a fight. And all I know is I'm just, you know, wailing away, hoping I hit something that belongs to him. <laughs> and at the end of this thing, I've got a black eye. But I feel good about it because I stood up for myself. Because I deserve better. Now, the truth is, we do deserve better. Nobody should be able to go around and knock people's hats off just because they they want to. But that reaction that I had was because of a sense of my own self-worth and what I think I deserve. Now, when someone is when someone is bullied and and mercilessly bullied over a long period of time, that sense of justice and entitlement and what we deserve can very easily morph into now a desire and intent for revenge. Right? Now, I'm not saying I would do any different. I'm not saying you would do any different. But behind that is I deserve something better. And the I deserve something better is all because we come into this world with a high view of ourselves, not a low view. So that when I am bullied... I don't, come to, I don't come to hate myself. I come to hate the people who don't realize how deserving I really am. 
See, this is the Bible's perspective. What's going on with all of us is we have the sense of entitlement, the sense of what we deserve, and it's violated in a lot of ways, sometimes in very extreme ways, by merciless bullying, which, of course, is, is horrible, and, 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 no, and no kid should have to undergo. But it's the reaction, and particularly the reaction and the desire and the hatred and the bitterness that plots revenge and, as we know, sometimes carries it out. In all of those sessions in that kid's bedroom or on that bus, in every one of those mental sessions that he or she is having, they are all comparing the way they're being treated with the way they should be treated, the way they deserve to be treated. And they've developed a toxic now hatred that sometimes will issue in carrying out revenge. So, if someone were to say, given what the Bible teaches about the fact that we really do come into this world with a high view of ourselves, if someone were to say, I hate myself, what would you think about that? You know, from a bib now, you, you want to be very careful. Someone is already wounded. Perhaps they've been wounded by other people. You don't want to pile on in what you say, but I'm just talking about in your own mind now to think about how someone is viewing his or herself when they say, I hate myself. Well, I've, I've had this happen lots of times over the years. And almost without exception, when someone says, I hate myself, they then fill in, they they fill in why that is. And what do you think the why that is, is? I hate myself because no one likes me. Or I hate myself because I'm so ugly. Or I hate myself because fill in the blank, right? Now, as I said, you don't want to pile on, you don't, but you want to help this person, which is the whole point of this series. Try to help people to see themselves as God sees us. And then to help us have an accurate view of ourselves, okay? So I'm not looking to pile on, be sensitive, all that. But I'm just telling you all, when somebody says, I hate myself because, fill in the blank. If you really hated yourself, I know it's process this. If you really hated yourself, you would be glad you were ugly. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, I deserve to be ugly. I hate myself. See, the reason you react that way is not because you hate yourself. The reason you act that way is because we have a high view of ourselves. I hate myself because people treat me X way. But it's not that I hate myself. It's actually I have a higher view of myself than that, and I should not be treated this way. If, in fact, I really hated myself, then I would look at it like, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting what's coming to me. I'm no better than that. So what does the Bible teach about our natural approach to self-esteem and the way we view ourselves? We have a high view of ourselves. We come into this world with a high view of ourselves, with a sense of what we deserve, what we're entitled to, and when that is violated, our sense of justice is violated, and then that in turn dictates our reactions in our relationships. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. Verse 
excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Verse 1. But mark this, says Paul who wrote this to his protege Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. Then he goes on to describe those terrible times. We're going to look at what characterizes those terrible times. But as you read that, there will be ter- those terrible times in the last days. You're thinking, well, I don't know if we're in the last days, so I don't know if these terrible times apply to us. We won't turn there now, but just co- compare this passage to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 that says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the Bible teaches we're living in the last days. And the reason that Paul is writing this to Timothy is not to predict what will happen, but what's happening. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, mark this. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves. Notice, lovers of themselves. And then that love of themselves will play out in all sorts of ways. It is not an accident that love of self is at the top of this list. Because it is what gives rise to everything else in the list. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. All right? I mean, money is the currency, literally, that gets me what I want. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, without, but not without self-love, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So this is the way the Bible describes humanity outside of, outside of Christ. How do people view themselves? People have a high view of themselves according to the Bible. And it goes way back to Lucifer, goes way back to the garden, And we are children of the garden, and we come into this world with a sense of entitlement and what we deserve, and it affects then our outlook, our in-look and our outlook, how we view ourselves, how we view others, and how we respond then to the way we interact with, with others. Years ago, 1973, a non-Christian guy, Carl Menninger, wrote a book. The title of that book was this. Whatever became of sin. This guy's a non-Christian, but he began to see in 1973 the trend toward self-esteem and self-love. And he asked the question in the title of that book, Whatever Became of Sin? The idea that we would view ourselves the way, the, the way traditionally Western civilization has, has viewed people through the influence of Judeo-Christianity, whatever became of sin, and his concern in that book was that this is going to have ill consequences for us. And we are seeing, decades later now, the ill consequences of people thinking inaccurately about themselves because of an emphasis upon uh, 
self-esteem and self-image, something that we already have, and now we're simply adding to. So sin has a particular psychology to it. Sin causes us to see ourselves in a particular way. Sin causes us to see ourselves as much better than we actually are and therefore entitled and deserving much more than we, than we actually, actually do. And we think, as I say, that we are, that we are good. Let me show you a, a passage where Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says otherwise. So it's not, you know, Ken. <laughs> Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus answers, All right, so you get somebody come up to you on the streets and say, Hey, how can I get to heaven? Have you ever thought about answering that person the way Jesus did? Here's his answer, verse 19 Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I just wouldn't have thought of that. But here's this guy who comes to Jesus with his superior assumption about himself. I'm good. In fact, embedded in the question is, what good thing can, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The assumption is I'm good enough to do it if I just know what needs to be done. So just tell me what it is. I can do it. And Jesus wants to disabuse him of the notion that he's good enough to do it. And so as Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is saying, if I, Jesus, am not God, I'm not good. Now, Jesus is God, so he is good. But we both know you're not. We both know you're not God. So what does that mean about you? You're not good. So you came with the assumption that you're good and you're good enough and you can do it. And Jesus, in one response, is looking to knock him off his heels a bit to show him that he really needs to see himself as he really is. He is not good. This high view that you have of yourself will not lead you to salvation. Quite the contrary. (laughs) The only way you will see your need for salvation is if you see the fact that you are not good. So there's none good but God. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and and your mother. All these I have kept since since I was a boy. Now it's interesting that Jesus picks these fairly obvious things overt sins, stealing, murdering, lying to present this guy with. Because, you know, if Jesus says, have no other gods before me, it'd be interesting to see what the guy would have said. In his arrogance, he still may have said, yeah, I've, I've kept that, got that one covered. But the truth is he would have been lying. But, but he, may, he, may not, he may not be a thief, a murderer. Jesus gives them those and, in effect, sort of sets them up. And the kid says, verse 21, All these I've kept since I was a boy. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said, You still lack one thing. 
Sell everything you have. So now Jesus is going to get to the loving the Lord your God with all of your heart because you love something more than you love God. And it's your stuff. And you came thinking you were good, but I am showing you that you are not good. You are not good inherently, and you are not good in the way you, you carry, out your, carry out your life, even if you're a fine, upstanding, tax-paying citizen. And so the Bible's view of people is that we have a very high view of ourselves, naturally have a high view of ourselves. And when we react to the way we are treated, it's because our sense of entitlement and what we deserve has been, has been violated. Now, back to page 6 then. Christian integrationist psychologists. And what's that? That's Christian people who have integrated this kind of pop psychology thinking into their counsel, use a number of passages to support the notion of self-love and self-esteem. We'll bounce through these fairly quickly, but Psalm 100, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And so self-esteem advocates assure us that because humans are God's creation, we must be of great value. God doesn't make junk, is the, is the motto. Now, while it's true that humans are God's creation, one, let's remember, so is everything else, but also we are God's special creation, unlike animals, and yet this fact should cause us to praise God for His goodness and mercy, should not cause us to boast about how wonderful we are. Our focus should be on God, not on ourselves. So, here's an illustration. If I were to hold up a picture of my wife, and I were to say to her, say to you, this is my wife. Now, that, that image on that paper and that ink is valuable. That ink and that paper are valuable. But why are they valuable? I mean, how much does the paper cost? I don't know, a few cents. How much does the ink cost? A few more cents. How much is the paper and ink really worth? Not much. But what makes the paper and ink in that instance valuable? because of whose image they bear. The value of that paper and ink in that picture, here's the key word, is derived from what it represents. And our value is not inherent. Our value is derived from the God whose image we bear, like that paper and that ink. And so it is not, I'm wonderful. The only reason I'm wonderful is because there's a God who made me in this marvelous way. And the glory goes to Him and deflects and is to reflect Him. That's the whole point of being made in His image. Middle of page 6, self-esteem advocates use Matthew 22. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. We saw this last week with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and greatest, and the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And as I pointed out last week, the self-esteem advocates say that here Jesus is saying that there's a command to love yourself. But, of course, Jesus said there are two commands. <laughs> there would be three 
right? If he said to love yourself. It would be love God, love others, love yourself. Jesus says there's a first, there's a second, and on these two hang all the law and the prophets. And so as I said last week, there is no place, dear friends, no place, none, zero, nada, anywhere in the Bible where God says to love yourself. Certainly no place where God commands us to love ourselves. And the Bible's assumption and Jesus' assumption here in loving your neighbor as you love yourself is that we already do. Because we have a high view of ourselves. James chapter 3. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. This should not be. Self-esteem supporters say... Since man is made in the image of God, he must be of great value, but we've already uh, addressed that. But actually in the Bible, there's, there are ample warnings against a high view of self. One of the Bible's aims is to correct our high view of ourselves that we naturally come into the world with. People are naturally prone to a high degree of selfishness and egotism. The writers of the Bible continually warn us against pride and self-love. Proverbs 8 Fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Self-love, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-centeredness, call it what you will, it boils down to the same sin of pride. And the Bible has nothing good to say about, about pride. Here's what one Christian scholar back... Uh, several hundred years ago, said about pride. Pride, which appears in men in thinking too highly of themselves and speaking too well of themselves and despising others in setting up and trusting to their own righteousness for salvation and in defending the purity and power of human nature, this is very contrary to the spirit of the meek and lowly Jesus and must be hateful to him. Jeremiah chapter 17 says famously, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And when the Bible uses heart, we say here, it's his control center. And Jeremiah is saying that the control center of the person that the Bible calls the heart, it's not just the physical organ that's pumping blood, but the control center of the person is totally sinful. In fact, so much so that he has a false view of his own value. Now notice this. One study of 200 criminals revealed that not one of those criminals believed he was evil. Each criminal thought of himself as basically a good person, even when planning a crime. This is a primary teaching of secular psychology. People are basically good, and if one's needs are met, he will self-actualize Maslow's hierarchy from last week and be a good citizen. The Bible contradicts that, and frankly, experience contradicts it as well. I have had occasion to visit jails, visit people in jail, people that I'm related to and in my work as a pastor. And I can testify to what's said here, that everybody in jail has gotten ripped off. They think. They don't deserve what, what they're getting. Now, we all know from the DNA project, that the Innocence Project, that some, sometimes people are jailed who are, in fact, innocent. That, that's true. But not everybody who's in jail is innocent. But virtually everybody who's in jail thinks that they are and thinks that they're getting something that less than they deserve. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 3, By the grace of God given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. It's clearly wrong then to possess a high degree of self-esteem or ego. The fact that the Bible directly addresses this issue shows how common it was and is for people to think more highly of themselves than they ought. The problem is high, not low, self-esteem. So then you come to verse 8. And why do we care so much, much about this? Because in order for someone to receive the truth of the good news, they have to be willing to accept the bad news. And see, at the heart of the good news, at the beginning of the good news, is the bad news, and that is that we are sinners in rebellion against God. And as long as someone is unwilling to face the truth that we are not good before God, I am relatively good, that is, related to comparison to other people. I'm relatively good, and so are you. But I am not absolutely good because the comparison is not to other people, it's to God. And unless I'm willing to see myself clearly that way, I will not see my need for the good news of God having to come to do for me what I could not do for myself. And the reason I couldn't do it for myself is because, in fact, I am sinful and my heart is deceitful. And who can know it, Jeremiah? Middle of page 8 then. Perhaps the biggest lie that self-esteem advocates tell is this. The fact that God sent Jesus to die for mankind proves how valuable man is to God. On the contrary, the sending of God's Son is not a demonstration of human worth, but the greatest demonstration of the love, grace, mercy, and kindness of our God extended to those, now note, who don't deserve it. First line of the next paragraph, self-worth advocates destroy the concept of grace. I mean, isn't the premise of grace that it's undeserved, unmerited, unearned, and prior to God, the Spirit changing our hearts, even unwanted. We were not seeking God. God sought us. And so, friends, this not only has impact for individuals, how they view themselves, how they react to their sense of injustice, entitlement, things that we deserve, and so on, but it has great theological consequences for the gospel itself and the grace that is at the heart of that gospel. So what does the Bible tell us? Bottom of page 8, deny yourself. Submit yourself to God and submit yourself to the needs of others. Top of page 9, humble yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. Clearly the Bible does not present low self-esteem as man's problem. In fact, the opposite. Pride is repeatedly and clearly stated to be the problem. British writer C.S. Lewis, writing before the self-esteem fad took off, made this interesting observation. The child who's patted on the back for doing a lesson well, the woman whose beauty is praised by her husband, the saved soul to whom Christ says, well done, is pleased and ought to be. For here the pleasure lies not in what you are, but in the fact that you have pleased someone you wanted and rightly wanted to please. The trouble begins when you pass from thinking, I have pleased him all as well, to thinking what a fine person I am to have done it. 
And this is the way we think of ourselves, more highly than we ought to think. Now, we're going to continue on. We're going to see in more detail what the Bible says about how we're to view ourselves, the ill consequences of viewing ourselves inaccurately. But let me just say this, and I'll beat on it in the weeks ahead. The Bible's objective is not for us to have a high view of ourselves, and it's not for us to have a low view of ourselves. It's for us to have an accurate view of ourselves. If we have too high a view of ourselves, then, obviously, then it's not accurate. If it's too low, it's not accurate. So there are things that God has given us to do, and then when we do them, we ought to be pleased about having pleased God. And God tells us to examine ourselves and to see whether or not we are making progress in those things that he has told us to do, a la the sanctification process I was talking about in our first hour today. And when that happens, our first reaction ought to be thankfulness to God, But I ought to have an accurate inventory as well of what God is doing in me and the gifts that he has given me and the abilities that he has given me and accurately assess those. And so God says he's gifted each of us differently. I have to know what those gifts are and I have to thank God for those gifts. But that requires an accurate assessment of who I am. Not too high, not too low, but an accurate assessment. And that's what we're going to seek to achieve in the weeks ahead, okay? All right, let's pray. And we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider this matter of human nature. Because how we view ourselves uh, is in turn going to affect how we view you, how we view others, how we view our needs, and in particular our need for the gospel. I thank you that you have given us the light of your word to show us the truth about ourselves and about humanity. Help us, Lord, to glean from it Uh, accurate truth about us and about others. Help us to be able to accurately communicate that truth, to do so accurately, but also to do so kindly and lovingly the way our Lord has done and would do. Lord, we ask you to go with us this week as we think about these matters, as we watch television and we read the newspapers, and we hear people say that what's going on in our inner cities is because people don't love themselves. I, Lord, just heard that this past week. And it's an inaccurate diagnosis of the problem and therefore will lead to a non-solution. So we need to be people who can look at these things clearly on a truthful basis. And we need to examine, beginning this afternoon and every day, all of the propositions with which we are confronted and help us to filter those through the truth of your word. May we begin that even today. And may we sharpen then our minds to think your thoughts after you and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Go with us. Grant us safety. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.